Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. First of all, um, what was happening just then was wonderful, and I was loath to stop it, and I'd like it to start again a bit <laughs> later on. Uh, in just in terms of the gathering around one another, the the support, the care, the friendship, the family uh, in being expressed this morning. Um, and going back to Thursday evening, uh, I know not all of you are around on Thursday evening. It's a real privilege to, to spend the evening with you and recognise it, it was hard, but at the same time, again, that sense of family together, uh, supporting one another, um, surrounding one another with, with love and care. Uh, thank you and well done and keep going with that. Um, I just want to remind you of the three images or pictures I shared with you um, on Thursday evening. Uh, This isn't related to my talk in any way. This is just a a bonus introduction. Um, The three pictures I shared that I hope will help us through this kind of transition we're on. Uh, The first two were um, from Jan, uh, or God, via Jan. Uh, First one... Uh, if you remember, of um, uh, a plant that was absolutely flourishing in rich soil. Um, and she, uh, Jan, saw two hands reaching down, and uh, she recognised they were the hands of God, so kind, so tender, so strong, so loving, just gently scooping up the plant and lifting it and placing it in other rich, fertile soil and not a single leaf or petal was damaged in any way. Uh, It's almost as though that plant had always been in that new position uh, and was still flourishing and growing, still a thing of beauty. A picture of just how God is able, through this process of transition, he's able to lift us up and carry us gently um, and replant us or repot us uh, so that we flourish. The other picture that Jan shared was of a kaleidoscope and I, I loved her little detail I never think of kaleidoscopes as if that needed to be said I, I don't know if anyone in the room does ever think of kaleidoscopes I certainly don't but uh, kaleidoscope um, and Jan helpfully gave a bit of uh, interpretation because I would have struggled even to remember what a kaleidoscope does but uh, a vivid kind of array of different colours arranged into a, a magnificent beautiful uh, kind of picture uh, and uh, she saw the, the, the kaleidoscope being shaken and all those colourful bits kind of almost dropping down uh, into a heap and a bit of a mess. Uh, and then one gentle kind of movement and suddenly they were rearranged into something equally vibrant, beautiful, colourful, reflecting something of the glory and majesty of God. And again, through this process, what you've got here is something of beauty uh, and it's glorious in many respects. Uh, and even through the, the brokenness and, uh, uh, and pain of what we shared on Thursday evening, we're totally trusting the hand of God, just that gentle movement, bringing out again that the colour, the majesty, the beauty of what you've got, uh, and adding it into other colours and other beauty, um, in, uh, whether it's in the wider church, central family, uh, or elsewhere, believing that God will bring something glorious out of this. And then the picture of, which is a biblical picture, uh, of the church as a flock. Uh, often we are referred to as sheep. 
Uh, and Jesus himself is a shepherd uh, who appoints under-shepherds uh, to help the flock uh, in terms of guiding and governing uh, and protecting uh, the flock. And through this time, really believes that uh, God wants to gently lead us from the pasture that we've been in where we've quite enjoyed the grass and grazing together uh, to a different pasture where there is grass that will keep on nourishing us. And I think my encouragement to you would be uh, we don't want any sheep getting lost or left behind. Uh, and sheep will move at different paces. Some will run on ahead. Some will kind of wander to the left or the right. But uh, through this whole process over the next weeks and months, want to tenderly, like under shepherds, uh, ensure that no sheep gets left behind or picked off or we want to walk alongside you and gather you together uh, and, and give a lead, uh, whether it's to the pastures at Church Central South uh, and really believe I'm in talking with some of you thinking, yeah, that, that is the place we want to go to. We want to help you uh, into that pasture there and for the sheep at Church Central South to uh, experience some of the blessing of the sheep here uh, without increasing that analogy into kind of bizarre realms but uh, I think there's a good pasture there for you but at the same time I want you to be free if there's somewhere else you want to go want to walk with you uh, gently leading you to a place where you can flourish uh, and, 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 and prosper so those three pictures through all of this uh, let's keep those in mind uh, that the, the gentle kind hands of God reaching down lifting up and replanting the kaleidoscope kind of shaken, oh no, what's happening? And then just a, a small movement, something of glory and beauty formed again. And we take comfort from the hand, uh, from the fact that God's hands are strong and mighty and powerful, and our lives are in his hands. And although we don't always understand what's going on, he can carry us and lead us, and he will. Um, and then the picture of the flock. Let's keep looking out for the sheep, uh, caring for one another, looking to move together. Um, and trusting the shepherd to lead us. All that being said, that was a random introduction. Um, all that being said, what I want to speak on this morning is the vitally important place or role of lament in our lives. Because certainly not for all of us, but certainly for some of us, maybe for many of us, that the news we've shared about Church Central West and at the closure of the church here, it has led to feelings of grief and even feelings of loss. I think the problem uh, that we, we face in these times is that a lot of the time, rather than expressing our emotions, I think a lot of us can feel this tendency or this pressure to hide them. Or distract ourselves from feeling them because it's painful and we don't want to feel the pain so we'll distract ourselves with other things or even just try and pretend they don't exist which means that when difficult circumstances cut into our lives we can have this tendency and I certainly can to try and do anything but face the pain and the heartache that we feel Here's the thing I want to try and show you today. Where the culture around us urges us at all costs to escape our pain, the story of the Bible tells us to embrace it. If you ever read through the Bible, you'll know it's rammed full of these prayers 
of lament. Habakkuk, which we started the meeting with, lamented the coming judgment on Israel. Uh, the book of Lamentations, I think that the name of it is a bit of a giveaway. It is one long lament. Jesus, as I think Owen shared the, the other week, cried out a lament in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Psalms of Lament are these incredible poetic songs that have given voice to the sorrow and the pains of God's people down through the centuries. And I don't know about you, but personally, I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful that the Bible embraces lament in this way. I'm grateful that it is honest and real about human experience. I'm grateful it, it doesn't settle for some superficially shallow way of describing what's going on and pretend that suffering isn't serious or that it's just an illusion. But all that being said, I reckon one of the things that has been conspicuously absent at least in the white Western church in recent times, is this ability to lament. It's like the pressure a lot of the time on us is to smile and project this image that we're doing fine and that we don't ever have any doubts or struggles or anxiety or worry. And so... As a result, we, we can end up with this weak, fake, pretty insipid, less robust version of what a Christian life is actually supposed to be. Which in my mind is absolutely tragic. Because if there is no category for a Christian to go, you know what, right now I feel abandoned. In my head, I know I'm not abandoned. I do know God is present. I know he loves me. But all that being said, I still feel stuck right now. If that category doesn't exist, then what can end up happening is we feel the pressure to project all the time this image of strength that simply isn't true. And rather than surrendering to our weaknesses so that we might come to a place of trusting the sovereign reign of God all the more, we instead present a false image that is flimsy and powerless to protect us when the trouble's here. Which in my mind is really damaging. Because what can tend to happen when we refuse to acknowledge the dark and the difficult realities in our lives and in the world around us is when is we can end up living these kind of self-reliant lives. Like, I've got to keep going and put a brave face on it and look inwards for the, for the help I need and never show any weakness. If us to acknowledge our need for dependency on God, and when we don't depend on God or recognise our need for Him, then we're, we're kind of on a course for disaster. But I think on the back of everything that is going on in the world right now, whether it's the global pandemic or the atrocities taking place in Ukraine or kind of been going on in Yemen and Syria for, for longer than that, I think what's going on in the world right now 
has been showing us that however hard we try, we cannot keep on avoiding pain and loss. And sooner or later, we do need to find a way of processing it. Which is where the Bible comes in. Because, uh, as I've shown you already, the Bible just contains this huge catalogue of really practical examples of how to do this. It's like, while the culture around us all the time urges us to escape our pain, the story of the Bible tells us and encourages us and equips us to embrace it. As I want to show you, Psalm 13 serves as this beautiful illustration, not only of how to embrace pain, but also how to find hope in the midst of it. It's only six verses long, but as we read it, I think we're going to find it perfectly models how to lament in a healthy way. And there are five main elements of lament that I'm going to kind of dip into from this psalm before we're done. I would encourage you, I, I can see we've already got some note takers in the room. Um, this, uh, I'm not kind of being self-indulgent here, but I think this is one to maybe just take a few notes on. Uh, because what I'd like to ask you to do at the end is go away and apply this message at some point over the next week or two. And it might help just to have some of the kind of key points written down. Because, yeah, know what we're like, we'll just forget, won't we? And um, uh, whether it's on an old school piece of paper, and I, I still use paper and pen, not quill, but pen, um, or uh, whether it's on your phone or some other device, j- just at least jot down the, the main points, because I'd love each of you to go away and use the main points as a vehicle to help you uh, process it in the week or, or, or two to come. Okay, let's uh, read this psalm together. See what you think. Psalm 13, starting in verse 1. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, aha, I've overcome him. My foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. For he has been good to me. Very quickly, let me highlight five stages of David's journey in this lament. Number one, first thing that David does here, he acknowledges. He acknowledges. I don't know if you've noticed, but four times David repeats that simple phrase, how long? How long? How long? How long? It's like he's frustrated by God's apparent absence and is very quick to express how he feels abandoned by him. In his mind, he's overcome by his enemies while God is seemingly nowhere to be found. And so he pours out his heart to God and releases the weight of sorrow 
that he's been carrying. You know, I think one of the chief ways that the enemy uses pain destructively in our lives is to convince us that we should stop praying to God. And as a result, many believers fall into this kind of resolved silence where there are some things that they can pray about, but the real, painful, honest things, it's like, no, I can't talk to God about any of that. And then they perhaps come to a church meeting like this one today where it seems like everybody has it all together. And I just want to commend you. I think there's an authenticity here. So I'm not talking about you in this moment. But in the church at large, there can be this kind of, everyone feels like it's, they've got it all together. And to compound matters, and again, Ali, good job. You, you didn't do this this morning. But often the words of all the worship songs are expressing a whole bunch of positive emotions that are a million miles from what they're feeling at that moment in time. And I've got nothing against those songs. And I love singing my heart out joy and praise and proclaiming the goodness of God and yes to all of those songs. But the challenge can be is that I don't often speak to the significant number of people who in that moment are grieving and are secretly wondering, does this even work? And just say, Ali, great song choices today. They're just a really helpful vehicle to, to help this family process what they're going through. But what Lament does is it just allows us to openly and honestly express something of the loss we feel to God. Helps us to keep talking to God about our pain instead of allowing pain to become this pit that we sink deeper and deeper into. But in order to do this, we do have to first of all acknowledge our pain. That's the first bit of lament, acknowledge. Second thing that David does in this psalm, he moves on to complain. Let's be honest, the idea of being a complainer isn't necessarily a very positive one, is it? And, and don't get me wrong, it is possible to complain in a sinful way. Uh, I, I can't stress how serious it is, how important it is that we balance our complaints at the same time with reverence and fear and respect for God. But I suggest there is a way of complaining that is very appropriate for Christians. Because, for starters, we believe in God's promises, don't we? And yet life often doesn't fit with what we know to be true, does it? It's like there's this tension, there's this gap. Like, God, I know in my head that you're good, but this is really hard. I know that you've promised to be with me, but at the same time, I don't feel like you're near me right now. And so David raises this complaint to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? It's like 
that the Bible gives us permission to take our complaints to God and say, God, honestly, this is what I am feeling right now. And by the way, God is not the least bit surprised when you tell him what you've been feeling. I mean, it's the, the, the crazy part of these complaints. I find it so hard often to tell God what I'm really feeling, only to be reminded that none of it was news to him in the first place that I was feeling that way. And so acknowledge, complain, and moving on, third thing David does, he makes a request. Now if you think about it, pretty much the whole of Psalm 13 is grounded in David's beliefs about the character and the nature of God. I mean the whole reason he cries out to God is surely because he believes God can actually do something about and change his situation. On top of all of that, God's repeated promises to provide for his good help convince him that really through it all, come what may, God is still committed to him. And so empowered by these truths, in verses 3 and 4, David fearlessly asks God for deliverance. Now I guess we can probably all think of situations in our own life, in the lives of people close to us, that we long to see change. But at the same time, we are powerless to bring this change on our own. However, in our laments, we're reminded that what seems impossible to us is possible for God. And like with David, our relationship with God is grounded in promises that encourage us to confidently appeal to him to intervene in our lives. Uh, here's what I think tends to happen. As we ask, we are not only pulling the promises into our world, but we're at the same time reminding ourselves that deep down, actually, I do believe this because I'm asking. It's like I don't have to, first of all, believe and then ask. Very often, I have to simply ask so that I'll believe. That's what lament does. It helps us. It strengthens us. And then fourthly, it eventually leads us to a place of trust. So from a place of pain and anguish, David ends up being able to say to God, verse 5, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. And so, instead of just giving God the silent treatment, or falling either into despair, like, I can't do this, or denial, like, well, everything's fine when it patently isn't, Lament encourages us to talk to God about our struggles so that we can come to a place of eventually reaffirming our trust in him. And I suggest that ultimately, this is where all laments are designed to lead. And it might take a while. You might get stuck in one of these places for hours, days, 
weeks, months even. Uh, it, it might take a while. And there is always Psalm 88 that ends without any hope whatsoever. It simply concludes, darkness is my closest friend. The end. But normally speaking, if you don't end in a place of trust, you haven't fully lamented, you've just been sad. So, acknowledge, complain, request, trust, and fifthly and finally, David ends his prayer of lament with a declaration of praise. But notice his praise isn't for what God will do, is for what he has already done. He says, I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. In spite of his pain, David chooses to praise God for the many ways he has already blessed him. Now look, <coughs> often in life, there is no joy without sorrow. That the fallenness of our world guarantees that those two dynamics, joy and sorrow, will always be interconnected until Jesus returns. And so uh, our goal shouldn't be to live a life devoid of all pain and loss, because that's impossible, but to be people who remember and rejoice over the blessings, the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of it. I'll end with this. I used to think, and bear with me on this, I used to think of my heart as being like a cup. Uh, and the normal circumstances, uh, you, you can fill a cup uh, with coffee or with tea or hot chocolate or whatever, but you wouldn't usually want to fill your cup with all of those drinks at the same time. Now, there may be some people who really love a cup of coffee, tea and chocolate all together, but that wouldn't be the norm. Here's the point. When people are anxious or fearful or sad, as I think it's probably fair to say, a lot of us are right now, sometimes you get well-meaning friends or preachers offering biblical, biblical encouragements like, do not be afraid, or do not be anxious. It's like the, the underlying assumption is that the heart is a cup full of fear or anxiety or worry that needs to be emptied out of those emotions so that it can then be filled with alternative emotions. Which sounds great in theory, but I think is fundamentally flawed in at least two ways. First of all, it fails to understand that sorrow and fear and anxiety aren't always sinful emotions. In fact, these emotions may actually be appropriate emotional responses to the situation we're facing. Second, this metaphor, this picture, fails to appreciate that from a truly biblical perspective, we are still living in days of sorrow. Yes, we are looking forward to the day when all tears will be permanently wiped from our face once and for all. 
But that day isn't quite yet. It is yet to come. And so, I would humbly suggest that it's not actually all that helpful thinking of the heart as a cup. It's better to think of the heart more like a set of balancing scales. Uh, sorry, I haven't got a pair to bring with me, so I'm going to have to act it out. You, you, you kind of, you, you get the kind I mean. That they're sort of used as a symbol for justice, perhaps, where the two sides weigh different arguments in order to reach a true and accurate judgment. I suggest that a proper use of biblical encouragements and exhortations should very much take this into account. You see, the encouragements, do not be afraid or do not be anxious, are not intended as a rebuke, at least not in every case. I simply don't think we're being told to pour out the contents of our heart and simply fill them with something else. Not least because that can cause a tremendous amount of false guilt for believers who can't just stop feeling anxious or fearful or sad, however hard they try. Instead, I think these encouragements should be offered as counterweights. As in, I know your heart is rightly heavy with sorrow due to the loss of some good things. That it's overwhelmed by threatening circumstances. That it's finding the prospect of change really tough right now. That it is uncertain of what tomorrow may bring. However, let me offer you a counterweight. Not to remove those very real emotions, but to place them in relation to a larger reality. The reality of God's sovereign goodness, his attention, his purposes, his promises, which offer solid reasons for hope and encouragement. You see what's happening? These counterweights don't remove the other weights. Instead, they provide a different perspective that enables us to bear the other weights of sorrow, anxiety and fear in a godly way even while perhaps still feeling intense grief and pain. All of which, I think, provides a helpful foundation for understanding the tremendous value of lament. As I've tried to show you, the laments in the Bible do way more than just voice painful emotions. The Psalms of Lament in particular go further than just releasing pent-up emotions. They're, they're more than kind of a pep talk or catharsis. Within themselves, these Psalms are a theology, a doxology. They're a form of worship. They're reminders of truth. They are exercises in faith. They are deeply transformative. They're a means of balancing the very real sorrow and grief we feel with the equally real goodness and faithfulness of God. And really my hope and my prayer is that in some way God is able to use what I've just shared to motivate and equip you to embrace the gracious gift of lament. 
however hard you find the coming days, the coming weeks, coming months, perhaps even the coming years. And so, rather than now going to groups and lamenting together and doing that exercise together, I want to release you to find some time over the next week or two to return to your notes or recall from your memory one of those five steps to lament and just take some time to work through them. And you might find one or two of them really quick and then you get stuck on the next one. But just take some time, maybe write some stuff down, pray it through with someone else um, and take as long as you need to work through to a place of trust and praise in God. This is a vehicle, it's a tool that God's given us to process our very real emotions in a healthy way. That's what I encourage you to do.